Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Reset Salon podcast. This is Ed McGuire with uh, Julie Albright and Brian Hayashi. And this week, we are going to be talking about the new collar workforce. This is not just a book, but it's a concept uh, actually really pioneered, if, if that's the appropriate word, uh, by Sarah Boisvert, who is joining us. She's a, a founder and a CEO of the New Collar Network. And uh, we will include links to her book, The New Collar Workforce. And we're also going to be talking about her newest book called People of the New Collar Network, which incorporates augmented reality. So it's some really amazing stuff that we're going to be diving into, uh, all, all sorts of you know, turning uh, turning ideas and, and imagination into reality using new technologies. So we're excited for a good conversation here. So I'm going to kick it over to Julie to, to give us some context. Hey, thanks, Ed. Well, the last few years, as you know, I've been thinking about how digital technologies are changing the way we live and work and play. And I call the constellation of behavioral changes coming untethered. It's an idea that I've explored in depth in my book. It's this notion that particularly young people, digital natives, are coming unhooked from traditional behaviors, traditional social institutions, including work as a place that you go and spend decades uh, in a long-term career. And one thing I can say, that's been a huge behavioral driver is these digital technologies and mobility, internet-enabled mobile devices of changing our social world. But now we find ourselves in the midst of a second huge changer or driver of behavior, and that is this COVID pandemic. The COVID pandemic has really impacted our world of work reshaping what it is we do and where, and challenging many of our core assumptions about our relationship to work and workplace. One idea that we've discussed in a, a prior salon is this notion of a new digital divide beginning to emerge between knowledge workers who are able to shelter in place and whose bodies in some ways are at lower risk and are less riskier as a result compared to those workers who can't shelter in place. People like the frontline medical workers, policemen, fire people, truck drivers, delivery drivers of various stripes from Uber Eats to Uber drivers themselves, restaurant workers and others. And then there's the whole category of those that are having trouble working at all. We could think of folks like musicians or stand-up comedians, actors, bartenders, and, and the like. Across Europe, we're starting to see now emerging the unequal outcomes of COVID-19 in workers due to this new digital divide that's beginning to show up. In meat processing, plant workers, for example, in Germany that are poorly paid Eastern European immigrants in Italy, we see it in Bulgarian workers in the agriculture industry. In Lisbon, Portugal, we're seeing poor immigrant workers, mainly from Africa. So one thing we're learning during COVID is that bodies are risky. And we're not just talking about hands-on blue-collar workers either. During COVID-19, we can think about digital employees or other AI-augmented entities that can take the place of Betty, the HR woman, for example. So 
this COVID moment, first and foremost, has accelerated and broadened this notion of working untethered, working from home, working from remote locations. And so overall, I see that as, as one of the trends happening, but I would say five main trends at this intersection of digital technologies, COVID, and the world of work. And these are, number one, coming untethered. This disconnection of people from traditional, we could call them anchoring organizations in society, from churches to buying a home to having a long-term career at a particular place, even to unhooking from nation state, young people seeing themselves as citizens of the world, these young digital natives who are unhooking en masse from traditional social behaviors and stabilizing social structures. That impacts the world of work because coming untethered means they're uprooted from, let's say, the 30-year mortgage in the suburb, which leaves them free to sort of work anywhere, changing the complexion of work and the workplace. The second big trend is work from home. And rather than just a bunch of hipster millennials that I was looking at in my book that is changing the idea of coming untethered from work as a place you go to something you do, as COVID has shuttered millions of workplaces during this pandemic, it's amplified and broadened this work from home to make it a mainstream trend. And I believe it's one that will well outlast this COVID moment, making work from home, working remotely, digital nomadism, or some hybrid model of the above permanent. The third big trend is a flight from cities. We've seen this and we've learned that density is not your friend in a pandemic. So the multi-year trend towards cities or what sociologists call urbanization is beginning to reverse and people are flowing out of the cities now towards suburbs or even rural or international locations and environments. The key there, of course, is digital connectivity. When we talk about things like Elon Musk's Starlink coming into play, that's a real game changer in this regard. Number four is the rise of touchless and automation. As we see bodies in workplaces becoming risky, there's been a huge uptick in interest in automating employees using AI. And we're not just talking about the robots that are assembling things on the assembly lines in Detroit, for example. We're now talking about, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Betty in HR and, and various other white collar roles in the workplace. And number five is seeking wellness. We've seen mental health, I would say physical health, amongst young people at crisis levels recently. And that was part of the driver of me writing my book. And the idea of bringing wellness in, particularly under COVID, this has amplified the importance of this or the centrality of this. The idea that wellness may now be an important pillar in the new workplace, something that's emphasized is going to be uh, very important. And as we think about the estimates now, by the way, there some are saying that up to 60% of jobs that exist now may be automated away within the next five years. So really, we're in a changing moment driven by 
digital connectivity and digital technologies by the advancements of AI and automation, by this COVID moment that's changing the complexion of cities, by the intersection of young people coming untethered, this crazy pandemic we found ourselves in. So changing value and expectation set now driven by COVID, that's really sort of broadened these ideas to sort of everybody at this point in time. So we might want to think, and I'm just going to throw a few questions out. We don't have to answer them today, but we can sort of begin gnawing on them as food for thought. Uh, And these are a few questions that are sort of arising in this moment about work, digital technologies, and COVID. And we can say, what, what issues are arising now that we have everybody working untethered, many permanently? What do we do about these workers who are at risk for COVID, whose jobs might be getting automated away? And what do we do with these white collar workers whose jobs are on the horizon going to get automated away? Who are the industry winners and losers in this kind of environment? And as more of us work untethered, there is a growing sense of disconnect between employees on teams and such, how can we reconnect teams, reconnect individuals within organizations while working remotely? And what do we do with all this empty office space in cities? How do we reimagine the city at that point or repurpose or rethink these office buildings as the knowledge workers flow out of the cities into the suburbs or rural areas? And lastly, This pandemic has given us an opportunity to slow down and really think more mindfully about the things that we're doing, the choices that we're making in our lives, how we might reimagine work in terms of both what we do and where we do it. And maybe how can we rethink it so we can achieve a sort of quality of life, maybe living happier, healthier lives going forward forward. I'm super excited to be thinking about the new world of work that we're heading toward. I I think this is a huge topic that we'll continue to talk about uh, as we go. But at this point, I'm tossing it over to Brian. Hey, Julie, thanks so much. You raised some important issues when we talk about the world of work and how things are going to evolve and the idea of winners and losers in, in all of this. I'm reminded of what's going on in uh, what happened earlier with the Suez Canal. We had gone from a situation where a year ago we were wondering about what was going to happen with the toilet paper on our shelves to today where we are, our culture is facing shortages of things ranging from lumber to uh, ketchup of all things. And I think it illustrates one of the big issues, uh, the big assumptions about the uh, globalism that I think we are starting to rethink. And that is the idea that it is better to source from a large global, you know, international source instead of what I think a, a better way of thinking about it, which is how do we build some of these capabilities locally? And of course, one of the challenges in building locally is where do we find all these artists? Where do we find all these artisans? How do we, how do we go from where we are right now to a world where we have these craftsmen that are available that can build those things that currently, you know, we can only imagine. And so I think back on the early days of the web and and think, what was it about the early days of the internet that made it possible for this huge explosion in productivity to, to happen? And that would be the right mouse click. Right mouse click, what is that? When you had a web page, 
You could do a right mouse click on any web page. And even if you didn't know a thing about HTML code, you could look at the underlying structure, the programming, the, the, the logic that went into the creation of that page, and you could recreate that page from scratch. And so within a very short period of time, from, the, from 1992, when I saw my very first HTML page, to 1994, when, when Netscape went public, we had an enormous explosion in the number of HTML coders that all of a sudden could create these web pages that never had existed before. And I think that idea, the, the ability to do a right mouse click on an object and think, I want something like this. How can we recreate this using local materials, using local processes, using local equipment? I think that having that kind of mechanism available can unlock a whole new world of local sustainability and of jobs that, that, we, can own, that, that, that we can just start to see happening. So... I'm really excited to hear from Sarah Boisvert today because her work working with the uh, with uh, Indian reservations, I think, is a precursor to this vague new world that we suddenly find ourselves in. And with that, I'm going to toss it back over to Ed. Thanks, Brian and Julie. Yeah, we've we are facing a uh, a really exciting, but uh, in for many people, a, a scary view into a uh, a whole new conception of how we work, how we how we think about supply chains, how we design what we need, how we source what we need. Uh, I think the you know the you know certainly the supply chain shocks that we had last year uh, with sudden shortages. Now seeing the flip side of that, where all of a sudden demand is. Uh, is spiking and and there are all sorts of uh, disequilibriums in the market is in many respects it's a wake up call but uh, in in many other respects it's this is this is just a, a kind of an inevitable outcome of the way that uh, supply chains have been designed for uh, you know for for shareholder return rather than rather with things leaving out many other very very important considerations but also during this time we've seen enormous enormous advances in technologies and um, uh, and the capabilities to to create and and make new things so I'd love to ask so Sarah you've got a uh, your in your career you have a, a background of working with uh, advanced technologies design and, uh, and and production technologies and would love to to hear just a bit of context on backstory on on what has brought you to to where you are, and if you could share uh, a bit of the work that you're doing. This is going to be a multi-part question, but also, um, you know, how this how th this concept of the future, the new collar workforce, is is informed by both your personal experience, your, your experience with people, but also the uh, you know the understanding of the potential for the technologies that, 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 that you immersed yourself in. Thanks so, so much, Ed. I come from manufacturing, from high-tech manufacturing. So I owned the company that invented and manufactured the laser for LASIK eye surgery, which was just another methodology for manufacturing eyeballs or uh, machining eyeballs. And we were in the laser micro-machining world. So we made lots of little parts for people like Apple and medical device companies. And the uh, LASIK was an extension of that. So instead of machining plastic, I was machining tissue. 
And all of these technologies that we talk about today in automation, we've worked with in high-tech manufacturing for 30 years. So, you know, we had robots. They, they were different than they are today. But we had 3D printing. We had laser machining. We had machine learning. So these tools were really part of my life. And I, when I sold my company, I was labless and fortunate enough that the media lab at MIT gave me a home and gave me a lab to play in. And uh, the media lab, for um, as I'm sure most of you know, is one of the coolest places in the Western world. And it's one of those places that does just the, the kind of work that Brian was talking about, a lot of open source work. Um, we have 2000 fab labs um, associated with my group at MIT. And a lot of our conversations and research is really about distributed manufacturing. And so I realized there was an enormous need for new kinds of, because you can't have workers without training them, uh, for new kinds of training models. And so I interviewed 200 employers, everybody from Fortune 10, so GE and Ford and Apple and Microsoft and big medical device companies down to startups and wanted to know what they were looking for in their operators and technicians, because that's where the skills gap is. They can find engineers. Engineers are a dime a dozen, but try and find somebody to fix a robot. And so I got done, and of the 200 people I interviewed, and they were mostly all my customers, so I had known them for a long time. So it was easy to, to get them to agree to, to speak to me. 95% said the number one skill they needed was problem solving. The second skill they all wanted was hands-on experience, which of course we don't have anymore. And and then they started to get into more technical skills like like CAD design or operating 3D printers. But I was really struck by two things. One was the uh, problem solving skills and then the the urgency that they were so desperate for workers. And and I thought, well, the two year, you know, degree that I thought we were going to develop is not going to cut it. It's not in time. People need workers today, not, not in two years. And I did some research and IBM and Mozilla had developed many years ago a digital badge micro certification program, and it just fit the bill. And of course, as many of you know, MIT's famous problem sets, and we we work in that same model um, in the fab labs where all of our work is project-based learning so that people can learn how to solve problems. And I thought, well, we do everything these guys need. And so we developed with America Makes the Additive Manufacturing Institute. We started with 3D printing and we developed a micro certification program where people could, for $250 and six weeks, get launched on a path to a new career and get a, a job as a CAD designer. I really believe that this whole idea of work and uh, education are inextricably linked. And that you can't have a change unless we really change our education models. And so if, if I think back to when I grew up in a mill town in New England, there, there were wonderful family lives. I mean, people 
sent their kids to summer camps and and you went on family vacations and you had I had piano lessons and I mean we were not wanting but most of the parents worked in in the mills and had really good jobs and they had jobs where they could support their families and I think a lot of the social unrest that happened with Mr. Trump getting elected had to do with the fact that people can't be 100% concerned about rights of other people, whether they're black lives or gay lives, if you can't feed your children, because our basic human need is food and shelter and taking care of our families. And I think there was a, there's a huge gap in equity between the haves and the haves nots. And now you've got the billionaires and then you have the people who can't feed their children. And so I saw this as an opportunity to really train people without them getting into a lot of debt. I did some research um, with uh, two groups in Baltimore. And what we found was that it was the people who had STEM degrees that made more money. So the colleges would all have us believe that um, you have to go to college or else you're not going to, you know, make enough money to, to survive. And the truth is that's really only true if you're in certain uh, de- uh, degree programs. And if you come out with, as I did, a music degree or as many people do philosophy or education degrees, um, you know, you never know if you're going to be able to get a job. And we have pushed people towards these programs and they also are concerned about, you know, how how are they going to repay this huge amount of debt? And so it may be that they ended up going to college and choosing a career path that they weren't even interested in, really, but it was something that they happened to be able to get into. They maybe didn't have the interest in engineering or science or math or any of the STEM, STEM fields. I started to look at this and thought there's, you know, there's really got to be a way to create programs. And so our digital badges have really expanded throughout the countries. We have a nonprofit that's part of the MIT Fab Lab Network. So right now we're offering the badges in I think 14 or 15 locations. And thanks to COVID, I figured out a way to do project-based learning online uh, in order to the schools drop ship the, the equipment to the home. And now a kid has a little 3D printer on their coffee table or on their dining room table and can actually uh, do the projects um, from home. Touching on, you know, automation, my feeling is, and it's based on a lot of research that's come out of the World Economic Forum, is that they're saying that in by 2023, which is like here, here and now, we will lose 75 million jobs worldwide to automation. But there are going to be double that, almost almost double, 140 million jobs created by automation. What I see is that automation allows the robots to do the heavy lifting. They're the ones that are in the coal mines doing the unsafe work. And they're the ones that are, are doing the mindless work that is boring and that humans really, that's not a good use of, of human ingenuity. And it frees us to 
do the higher level cognitive work that is where humans excel. And when we give people those opportunities to to work with their with their special skills that only humans have, that's when people really excel. And so as we look at what's happening with robots and cobots and robots that work with humans, I, I really think that it's an opportunity for us to go beyond what could be happening in today to something that really allows people more opportunity for innovation because the robots don't innovate. Um, it's humans that innovate. It takes that very special human capability to innovate. The robots may find you know, a, a, a more efficient way to do something or with machine learning, but even with machine learning and AI, they're looking at millions of human interactions in order to base that data upon. They're not coming up with it in a vacuum. And so I really see you know, a couple things there where this is presenting a lot of opportunity. I think it's an opportunity for us to bring back a new middle class that is working in digital skills and that has opportunity to to work in better paying jobs, um, kind of like the middle class used to. And I mean, they're not going to become Steve Jobs or, or uh, Bezos, but they can support their children. They can have a, a, a good family life. And I think we've lost that and we have to bring that back. Sarah, you brought up a really, I think, foundational issue, which is the, you know, the challenge of uh, the the current education system, which, you know, in many respects is, you know, is quite dependent on credentialism. And, you know, the the idea of being able to to have, you know, badges or or you know, sort of micro degrees, skill-based degrees, it represents a, a, a radical shift from that. And the, you know, the ultimate market for the application of that education is going to be either employers or, you know, because kids go to, you know, they go, they go to school and they think they have to, you know, they got to get the best credential they can. It's this all you can eat buffet uh, of curricula that don't get updated. You know, they're not necessarily teaching skills that are useful. Um, I'd love to get your, you know, just your experience on, you know, what your thoughts are, you know, working, you know, with, I know IBM and Cisco have done, uh, done some of that, but, you know, what's the, you know, what are some of the, the challenges and opportunities to create more incentives to, you know, to create more value in, in this, you know, in, in this, in this approach, because it seems like, it would really relieve a lot of pressure off these, you know, off kids who are taking on debt with no, I mean, that is, I'll leave that off the table. I think it's one of the great crimes of our, you know, our generation, what, what is being done to, you know, kids and forcing them to go into debt. Uh, so, yeah. but I, <laughs> but, but, um, but you're offering a way out and I, and I, and I think that's so, it's so great. So you know, college enrollment has declined 11% over the last 10 years. And so it, this isn't something that's happened just because of COVID. COVID exacerbated the problem. Parents couldn't really, and students couldn't really justify paying those high uh, tuitions when you're learning on Zoom. And so at least here in Santa Fe in New Mexico, the community college this year, uh, their enrollment is down 28%. So suddenly, <clears throat> something that had been a trend that they were bucking 
is really rearing its ugly head and, and they're having to deal with it right away. So what what I found when I came to the my I have a lab at the community college that now is at the higher education center. So we serve four colleges here. And when I first came, I mean, they just thought I was out of my mind. And it, part of it is because they're incentivized by the state, and this is true in other states like Ohio, they're incentivized to offer degrees. There's no incentive to offer alternative education programs. And so all of their funding for each year is predicated upon how many degrees they granted the year before. And so they're not going to reform until it is one, so desperate that they're going to go out of business, and two, until the state legislatures change their funding of how how they do it. So it's a really fundamental problem. And I uh, did some consulting for two years with, after I wrote my book with the National Governors Association and brought in a number of people from industry, higher education, policymakers, just a wide range of people. And there was someone from the continuing ed department at Harvard and Harvard and this was now two years ago, um, Harvard was offering more credentials than degrees. They are talking about taking the storied Harvard MBA and breaking it down into certificates. And I mean, part of it, we've seen this coming with Twitter. And when USA Today came out, I I was like, oh my God, this is like, you know, I'm, I'm a New York Times cover to cover reader. And, and I love like how you can get a story that's four pages long. When USA Today came in, I thought, oh my God, this is the beginning of the end. And I, and then Twitter came and people want bite-sized tr- chunks of information. <clears throat> they, they're all too busy. Life has changed radically. And we have to give people training and information and education in the formats that work in today's world. College where we are, 58% of the students work full-time. Many of them have children and family responsibilities. So we have to start thinking about wraparound services. And so it's great, you know, for people to say, oh, free college for all. But what do they do with their kids? Where do the kids go? How do you pay for childcare? It's a, it's a very complex topic. And the kind of change that needs to happen is really a fundamental change of a mindset. <clears throat> and we're starting to see because employers are, I mean, you think of all of the, when I was in Cambridge, you know, I'd be riding the bus, which you do in Cambridge, and with these uh, kids from, whose parents were professors at Harvard and MIT, and they'd be high school students, and you'd overhear them saying, oh, I just got an offer from, you know, Microsoft for 250K, and I'm, I'm going to skip college, <laughs> you know, and the world is changing, and the employers are seeing that, and the employers are seeing that it's really about what can you do, how can you make a contribution to the to the world and to the to the employer and it's not so much about where to go to school and what's your degree it's much more today about the skills any Rometty who actually coined the term new collar workers and tim cook were on a white house task force during the trump administration and that task force convinced the white house to put out a directive, so this would this was the summer of 2020. They put out a directive to all government hiring agencies that they needed to change their hiring practices 
to value skills over degrees. And, you know, the U.S. government is the largest employer in the country. So you know that that's going to have a big impact. I have some interesting experiences in supply chain, whatever you want to pivot to that. Okay. Uh, One of your experiences I wanted to drill into was some of your work locally with the uh, the local reservation, uh, Native American reservation, and, and some of the work that you're doing through the community college there and, and how um, maybe we can get in some some bigger some 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 bigger picture themes, but but I love to hear your experience with working with with students and and what you're seeing, how how the, your approach is having an impact of uh, directly on students on the ground. My experience is that project based learning allows students to blossom and it allows them to find a path. So at the community college, we teach through the continuing education department, not through the academic side of the house. And I had a class, I was training the person who was going to teach the class. And I had three PhDs from Los Alamos. I had two jewelers from Santa Fe, we're a big artist colony. We had uh, the kid who ran the biofuels lab next door to us. We had a couple of students from uh, the community college. And one of them, and with project-based learning, you can do that. With project-based learning, you can have a mixed group like that because they're all working at their own level doing their own project. And you bring in the skill sets that they need based upon where they are in in their path. And so a young man took the class who was a computer science major. And I thought to myself, God, this kid is so bright. You know, how come he's not at at Harvard or MIT? And uh, it turned out that he had gotten accepted at Drexel and went for a semester and discovered he had ADHD and couldn't make it through the first semester and came back thought he was going to have a um, career as a, a waiter in our town, which is a big tourist attraction. And, you know, but his parents encouraged him to try to go to the community college. He hated it because it wasn't challenging enough for him. But because we did project-based learning, he could be challenged and it allowed him to really spread his wings. And And he went on to take all of our digital badges. And then I hired him as our lab manager. And we have a paid internship. He was an intern first and then our, our lab manager. I also have two registered apprenticeships, uh, apprentices. Uh, I was able to get a registered apprenticeship through the U.S. Department of Labor, which is a very formal process for 3D printing technicians. And there's all this talk about, about apprenticeships and how we have to fund them. Well, who, who wants to go out and, and get an apprenticeship as a HVAC guy? But, you know, when you start to talk to kids about you could get an apprenticeship in 3D printing or in robotics, you know, now you're starting to get some interest. The great thing about apprenticeships is that, as you probably know, you your education is free. So all of our trainings for them are free and they make $40,000 a year while they're going through the program. And so I have two people who started March 1st and they were both um, the people I was talking about who, you know, are told they have to go to college. So one has a music degree and the other has an undergrad degree in business. Neither of them could find jobs. They were working in the uh, food industry, lots of restaurants here in Santa Fe, and and then COVID hit and they were laid off. 
And we found with COVID, so many people were, were rethinking this idea of I could be a professional waiter. And so both of them have now, they're a month into, and, and they're having so much fun. One of our big projects right now is, um, I'm a big uh, House Rabbit Society fan, and the people who found me, my my House Rabbits in New Mexico, the nonprofit here, has a bunny that broke her back, and we're uh, developing prosthetics for her back legs because she has two paralyzed back legs. And these kids are just eating it up and and having so much fun. We had one of the people I was describing who's the jeweler, um, and I'm wearing her ring. So yeah, this- I wish we un- unfortunately on the on the podcast we we don't have. <laughs> We don't have uh, video, but I can tell yeah, anybody who's listening, it's a pretty cool looking ring. It is. You know, it's so funny because I always think when you say podcast, it's going to be audio only. And I have found recently that people are using video too. And I have had so many where I just looked dreadful and because I wasn't prepared because when you say podcast to me, I think it's audio. But anyway, we digress. But it's the Taos Pueblo as this extraordinary ring. And so she had not graduated from junior high. She's a Mexican immigrant. And her name is Maite Cardenas. And she came to us to learn CAD design because she really wanted to increase her productivity in her jewelry business because it takes a lot of time to hand cast, uh, hand sculpt the molds. So she designs in CAD. Um, we 3D print the molds in a stereolithography 3D printer. So not the kind that's in your in, in your makerspace, but a more sophisticated uh, laser-based system. And then she has it cast in sterling. And she told me that it has increased her sales because now instead of sitting and having to do all this very, very detailed work, we, she does it in CAD very quickly and, and it uh, allows her to spend more time on sales and marketing of her products. So we have a pretty diverse group uh, that we've trained in New Mexico. Um, we work with the Santa Fe Indian School, and New Mexico is a very rural state, partially because most of the state are, is reservations. We're a state of two million people, and have uh, we're sixth in the country in terms of uh, land mass. So we have a large area with not many people, and a million of those are in Albuquerque. So uh, people are few and far between, and the reservations are remote and have a number of serious issues, particularly with water. And so when COVID hit, we built with Harvard and MIT and my group, we built 30,000 face shields uh, uh, that went to the hospitals that serve the Navajo and the Pueblos. So we're, um, we have both Navajo and Pueblo. We have some other tribes as well, but those are our predominant tribes. And and then I realized that the CDC was directing that people wash their hands and a huge number. So over 100,000 homes um, on the reservation don't have hot and cold running water in this day and age, which is really hard to believe. So we worked with the Santa Fe Indian School and their students and their teachers to develop a mobile hand washing station where you could set it up and at least people could have a way. We still had to get water to it, but it gave us a way to, you know, for people to go in. Actually, we were looking at how to recycle the water. So that was a really interesting project. It's still going on. We're testing 
it on uh, now that winter is over because it's an outdoor system and I can send you a picture of it. We were going to make something because you can buy, you know, these things for five or $700, but they're on wheels. And on the reservation, you really can't have them on wheels. So they wanted a tripod kind of along the lines of a teepee. It's interesting because we look at it and go, oh, that's not very sophisticated, but it's so functional. We can make it for $50 per hand washing station instead of five to 700. So it's a, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And there's a lot of work that happens on the reservations that is really because of the poverty that is here. We live in a very poor state. And I think the work that we're able to do with the native population. I'm doing a study with the University of Cambridge in the UK and the University of New Mexico. Uh, uh, And in Cambridge, they have a, a lab called the Cyber Human Lab. And it's about the interaction between machines and humans um, in man- it's in their manufacturing institute. And what we're going to be looking at is how do these machines impact performance of workers, so productivity and efficiency and worker satisfaction, but how does it different among cultural groups? So how do your Native American workers relate differently than your Black workers? worker than your Latino worker than your white worker because then when you understand that and understand how people culturally approach machines then you can start to design training programs where they have even more success so that was kind of a long answer yeah but that that (laughs) actually touches on kind of where we wanted to go we wanted to go next which is to expand this view and this vision of the new collar workforce and would love to have uh, your insights and in, on this, you know, what what does this mean? And I and you had you've gone to the trouble of putting together a book that has augmented reality capabilities, so that you can look at a picture and and see a video and hear somebody talking about it. But um, you know, just let's 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 explore a bit of, of of some of the themes that you've uncovered and and where you see the you know the opportunities ahead. What is this, you know, what will the, what are the, what are the, what are the good things that, that are, that are ahead in the opportunities that are now available and potentially, you know, hopefully a more broad, you know, broadly understood and, and appreciated career option for, uh, for people that are, that are dealing with a changing world. As I was saying before, automation is, is really opening up opportunities for people to do more creative work. Walmart told us, someone from HR at Walmart at one of the roundtables for the National Governors Association, that their big worry is who is going to repair the janitorial robots that they're starting to roll out in their stores. They're rolling them out today. So these jobs are not just in manufacturing. The VA hospitals, as well as many hospitals, now have 3D printer capability. They 3D print the guides for when uh, you're doing um, implanting, particularly things like artificial knees or artificial hips, all of those guides. And the guides are specific to the particular person. So a real advantage of 3D printing is mass customization. They'll also take scans of a particular issue with a body and allow a surgeon to practice with an exact replica that they've 3D printed of that 
particular problem that that person has. Almost all the dentist offices I know today 3D scan in order to have prosthetics uh, 3D printed and more and more of that is being done at the dentist office. So now that's a, that's a whole lot of jobs. There's a lot of dentist offices um, in every town. So the jobs are, in my experience, they're becoming ubiquitous across industries. So you know, when I started out, those jobs were only in manufacturing. And now they're in the warehouses and they're, uh, the autonomous vehicles are, you know, needing a different kind of worker. So I, I think what's happening is the openings are not where you would think to look. You know, they're not just at Los Alamos National Lab. They're at the Walmart down the street or at the Amazon warehouse or they're at the, uh, although Amazon may not be a good example with all of the stuff that's just gone on with their worker uh, union, but those are jobs that are more interesting than stocking shelves or, you know, doing something that's rote and mundane. And, and I think that it also, to Brian's point, brings up more opportunity for entrepreneurship and I argue all the time with uh, with Neil Gershenfeld at MIT because he's a huge proponent of um, distributed manufacturing. And I am to an extent. I really don't want, though, a coronary stent in my heart that was built in some guy's garage. And this really came to the forefront during coronavirus because I, can, because I come from medical devices. I consulted for a lot of groups making PPEs. And I would always try and push the maker spaces towards making face shields because we could do that. You didn't have to go through. I have an FDA registered lab, um, but most people don't. And the face shields are easy. They go over the mask. So they're a second layer of protection. So they don't have to jump through all the hoops that you need to to for other kinds of things like N95 material or respirators. And I had a group come to me who wanted to make respirators. And I thought, you have no idea what you're getting into. And do you want some machine like that made in some, and it's one thing if it's an emergency and we're in a pandemic, but uh, you know, on the greater scale of things, I think there has to be some understanding of where distributed manufacturing makes sense. And what that is going to look like. So, you know, distributed manufacturing to some people is in, you know, very, very small scale. In my mind, distributed manufacturing is smaller factories that still employ great QC, great production capability, and but that are serving a local market. And to me, that's the one that could win because, you know, I'd be okay with having a stent that was made down in Albuquerque if I knew that good, good manufacturing processes were put in place and they, they were safe. So I think that um, for things like jewelry or, you know, lots of products, and we've seen that with, with platforms like Etsy, you know, these kinds of tools do open up the opportunities for entrepreneurs, but as you get into more complex uh, products, particularly as you get into high volume production, it's it's challenging. You know, distributing manufacturing is, is is challenging, and so you really want to have groups where they understand how to still have the economies of scale and still have the qu- the quality control and still have the things that you could achieve in China, but have it locally. 
And so to me, that's a big distinction. Great. Well, I think we have time for one more question. I wanted to broaden the the topic a bit more because you'd made it, you had alluded to your thoughts on uh, some of the supply chain challenges that that we've seen. And I'd love to get your thoughts, just kind of summing things up on, you know, the impact of all of these technologies that that appear to be enormously empowering to local production and what some of these crises and and supply chain crunches i'm going to leave semiconductor fabs out of the conversation because that's 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 another issue <laughs> yeah. entirely right but but that's a whole nother level of production and there is a semiconductor fab in albuquerque that intel owns um, you want to grab I, grab a few <laughs> just to get a word of you Yeah, I had a very interesting experience with supply chain um, during COVID. So I have, as I mentioned earlier, I have a small tabletop stereolithography 3D printer and uh, that is from Form Labs, who generously gave it to my nonprofit lab. And they uh, had done some work on test swabs. And I saw that and I thought, oh, we can do that. And so I talked to their CEO who came out of our lab at MIT, so I know him well. And I said, how many of these a day do you think we can make? And he said, well, most people can make 500. Since you have a lot of manufacturing experience, you can probably do 750. And, and I thought, okay, well, that's, you know, that's, that's going to take a while to real to really get the kind of volume that we need. And so I uh, had been talking with Avi Reichenthal, who was the former CEO of 3D Systems, and who now has a VC firm that has funded a number of 3D printing companies in California. And he had a production machine that could make 12,000 a day. So I could go from 500 to 12,000. And so we, you know, worked out this using robotics and robotics parts handling and some good manufacturing processes. You know, I got my, my costs down to $1.50 per swab. At the height of the pandemic, you could sell them for $4. And the, a lot of them were being sold in, in big cities that were under real stress, like New York and Los Angeles. As time went on, and the demand and the urgency became less severe, the price dropped, as you could imagine. So it was down to like $3. But still, you know, I had enough profit in there to survive. And I got word that the state of New Mexico was needing to buy 100,000 100,000 or 200,000, a large number of of swabs. And so I contacted them to find out what their approval process was. And the design had been approved by the uh, medical teaching hospital at USC in California. And talked to them, and they told me what the process was. And it was, you know, a typical government bureaucracy. You had to jump through a lot of hoops and and so I thought, well, I better make sure this is going to fly. So I asked him in this in this purchase they were going to make what their budget was. And he said, well, you know, we found a supplier that's come back online in, in South Korea, and they're gouging us. They're charging us 50 cents a swab, and we normally pay three cents. And I said to him, well, you know, I, I, I want my state to do well, but my cost is $1.50. So I could probably, you know, sell it to you for $2 and feel good about helping the state and all the hospitals here. And he said, oh, no, we can't. We have to buy on price. And until 
really there's changes both in the mindset of purchasers and in the mindset of our policymakers. You know, you really want the states to be leading the way and saying, yeah, we're going to invest in this nice little company here in New Mexico that's employing our people. But it was like, no, you know, you're we just can't, we have to, we have to, you know, find the cheapest price. And, and we actually have a better design because instead of it just being the swabs, it, you know, has all of the structure that you can create and only create with 3D printing. And it was very frustrating. And I, I don't know, I've, I've talked to a number of the legislators here about how can we start to change on a state level um, in order to for them to understand that we have to invest in in our companies. And I think that's going to be one of the big challenges of supply chain is coming over coming overcoming that price problem. Sarah, that's that's a so a super interesting perspective on uh, on the state regulator problem. Clearly we're not asking them to asking you to create stents, but I'm thinking about things like food safe applications. How far away are we from being able to have locally sourced food safe containers? And and what is it going to take to get the states and the cities to to understand that if it's fed, if it's compliant with the FDA, that they can they can live with that as well. It's going to stay with pricing. I mean, 3D printing is not a solution for high volume. I mean, I think you guys have seen my cube earrings that I wear all the time, and people always say, "Oh, you should you should sell those." And I always think, "Oh, if I wanted to sell earrings, I'd make a mold and get them made for less than a penny a piece in China." And I, I shudder to think this is a different design, but I shudder to think what it costs to print this. You know, considering my time and energy. Um, as part of the process. And so I, I think until we can get um, volume production to a price, 3D printing is starting to compete with injection molding at about, you know, 100, 150, 200,000 parts, something of that order. But certainly you want to make a million parts, you have to go to injection molding. And there's not a lot of really high volume injection molding readily available in the US. And what there is tends to be um, not of the speed that you can get in China. So I, you know, we we can we can make all those things here, um, but I think it, it comes back to volume, speed, and price. Yeah. And you, you know, people People talk about it all the time, but when push comes to shove, they go to the grocery store and it's, you know, it, they they really tell you how they feel about it with their pocketbooks. And so people will say to me all the time, I shop at the farmer's market and they'll say to me, oh, it's so much more expensive. And I think what well, you tell me all the time, you want to support our community. So I don't shop at I mean, I'll run over to Whole Foods. There's one thing I buy at Whole Foods, but I would prefer that my money stay local. And I pay a little bit more, but, and some people can't afford to do that. You think about somebody with a bunch of kids who is trying to feed their kids in the most economical way, but also people who can afford it, willing to make that sacrifice. And I think that when, you know, we really have to put our money where our mouth is. And when we say we want 
Americans to to have good jobs. We need to bring those jobs back by our economy purchasing American. And and that sounds kind of yeah, it's it's that basic. And I went to I spent a lot of time in Japan when I had my laser company. And I went to the home of a um, a couple for dinner. Uh, he was the production manager of our factory there. I had the weekend off and I spoke Japanese. So I went off and I, I said to them, I had a shocking experience. I went to um, the market and I bought like eight plums for $12 or something, you know, some or $20, some huge amount. Not the, not the melons that are the famous ones, but fruit was very expensive. And that was like the most affordable thing I could find. And without missing, and I could have bought a whole bag of groceries of fruit in the US for the same price. And without missing a beat, they both simultaneously said it's for the good of the country. I think until in the US, we start to have that mindset of we're going to have to sacrifice if we want those jobs back. It's tough, and it's tough to convince people of that. It's cultural, and people have to be willing to, uh, you know, willing to support their their people in their neighborhoods. And it's something that, you know, this has been going on for decades. We all appreciate convenience and saving money and and buy, being able to buy a bunch of cheap stuff. But yeah, again, I mean, I think the pandemic has really caused a lot of people to rethink their own priorities. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think as we're optimistic, part of the, we started these salons is to explore what we think are going to be positive outcomes. And and I have to say that you have outlined a, a wealth of, you know, new opportunities and new approaches and, and a lot of hard work ahead for us to really get some significant change. But I think, you know, from the education system to the to the rethinking of credentials that, that companies use to hire, to to understand the technologies and putting them in the hands of, of people who have never even thought about or imagined the types of, of work they might be doing. This is, I think, what brings us back again to your book, your ideas. Um, and I think with that, we're, we're just about out of time. So we're going to um, just highlighting here this this is, uh, this is uh, Ed McGuire with Julie Albright and Brian Hayashi uh, at the Reset Salon. Our guest has been Sarah Boisvert, who is the founder and CEO of the New Collar Network and uh, the author of The New Collar Workforce and People of the New Collar Network Augmented Reality Book. So please check it out. All of the links will be in the show notes. And also, if you've made it this far, we really appreciate your sticking with us. Smash that like button on your on your on your podcast. Tell your friends. Help spread the spread the word and build the community. And with that, thank you for listening. But especially, uh, you know, thank you, Sarah, for for sharing your time and ideas. This was a lot of fun. 